Being a CISO is like waging a never-ending chess game against players you don't know, can't see, and attack without warning. On this podcast, cybersecurity experts have a pragmatic dialogue on cyber risk, current attacks, and security trends. Welcome to the CISO's Gambit. I'm your host, Sean Cooper. In today's episode, we'll discuss the unique requirements placed on cybersecurity, networking, and business units during mergers, acquisitions, and divestitures. And we'll be speaking with two experts with a deep experience and understanding of the complexities and requirements to make mergers, acquisitions, and divestitures a success. Sammy Ramachandran comes with a deep transaction experience as leader at top advisory firm, where he advised PEs and enterprise clients on the buy and sell side of mergers and acquisitions. We're also lucky to have Pamela Kubutowski, the former director of global network services at a multinational healthcare company, which is also a Fortune 100. She led architecture implementations and operations for over 1,000 global sites and for over 100,000 users. Pamela is also a co-host of the great podcast, which I highly recommend, Cloudy with a Chance of Trust. Sammy and Pamela, thank you both for joining us. Thanks so much, Sean. It's great to be here with you and Sammy. Thanks, Sean. Happy to be part of this uh, podcast with you and Pam. Well, this year has been a pretty fascinating one in terms of the consolidation, both in the IT security space, the vendor space. We've started to see organizations that were once giants in the industry uh, getting purchased and and packaged up and in some cases resold to private equity. And that made me think this seems to be not that unique when you look across the entire landscape of business transactions. And I know we see it across some of our customers, whether it's in the cybersecurity space or elsewhere. Why is it that we're finding M&A becoming even more important on the day-to-day and why it continues to be a top-of-mind issue for security and IT professionals? Sammy, could you give me a perspective on on how you see this? Sure, yeah. So let me start with uh, a few uh, numbers from last year. Talking about transaction, there were about... 18,500 deals that closed in the U.S. alone valued close to $3 trillion, right? And globally, there were about 35,000 transactions worth close to $5 trillion, right? That's after a dip uh, in 2020 when COVID hit. Now, another point to note is these numbers are the highest in the last 10 years. So what's driving this? Number one, easy monetary policy. Number two, increase in private equity-driven transactions. Now, an important aspect to this landscape is where technology is placed. We are seeing a lot of transactions where the buyer is focused on acquiring the target company's tech platform, right? Whether it's a tech-driven company, it could be a fintech, insurtech, or it could be a company with a lot of algorithms, the proprietary algorithms developed over a period of time. So the crux of many of these deals 
is technology. And that's where securing the tech platform, whether it's enterprise systems or business systems, is becoming more and more critical for the buyers. Now, Sammy, on that front, during my M&A days, we actually would get excited when an M&A would come through because it allowed yeah. us to free up budget that we normally wouldn't have. So it was, oh, I need to upgrade this legacy firewall, this legacy switch. I'm going to add a bunch of additional CapEx for it. Now, in the context of cybersecurity, what are you actually finding in terms of those types of approaches? I certainly know I'm not the only one. I've spoken with many peers that have said, yeah, I basically continue to do the same thing. Do you see that changing? in terms of today's approach towards M&A, or is it about the same? No, it's definitely changing. I would say it's changed a lot in the last three years or so. When you talk about a transaction, we also see a lot of cybersecurity breaches taking place as soon as a trans transaction is announced. So think of you know, the, the web well-publicized Marriott SPG transaction and the, and the breach that they discovered on the SPG side after the transaction was announced. And eventually, Marriott had to pay a lot of fine, right? Another popular case is Yahoo's deal with Verizon. So what has happened in the last couple of years is as soon as a transaction is announced and as these companies are trying to integrate their networks or maybe separate their networks, that's the, the right time for bad actors to penetrate corporate IT. So, so more and more, we are seeing an interest from not just the CISO, not just the CTO, but from the top at the CEO level, CFO level, they want to make sure to protect the deal value, they have to focus on cybersecurity. So it's definitely becoming front and center when we talk about transaction. Pamela, you've led massive, massive infrastructures. I'm curious, uh, when you hear what Sammy is sharing with us in terms of this due diligence, you as both a practitioner, executive leader, and technical expert, is that meshing in terms of your experience? Are you finding that these things that lead to better outcomes in terms of M&A, that these things have aligned to the way that Sammy is? is describing them or has your experience been different? So I think there's two, I think there's two things. First thing is I was kind of chuckling, Sean, because you had, you had talked about the fact of being able to potentially mitigate certain things in your previous role due to an acquisition and the funding associated with the acquisition, right? Um, I would have loved to have that situation in my previous life. Um, I had a lot of mitigating to do and I didn't have the right funds. And quite frankly, what we found were the synergy targets were so were set to such a level that we basically didn't even have enough to do everything that we should have done, like from a standardization and all that, right? So so we were trying to find all those savings to go against the financial targets to make that actual acquisition worth the benefit of the company doing it, right? What so, do you mean when you say uh, synergy targets? Sure. So, so basically what would happen is we would get notified that, and, and sometimes for an acquisition, we'd actually be notified like everybody else in the news, right? Oh, 
this company today, Fortune 100 healthcare company buys blah, blah. <laughs> and we're like, oh, no, not another one. You're like, oh, I guess we're not no. working, getting off <laughs> this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, we have eight in the hopper we're doing right now. So we find out it was done. In a lot of instances, it wasn't the IT teams putting together what the actual integration budget would be. You were pretty much in a lot of situations handed a budget and says, this is what you'll use, do with it what you will, protect the company, integrate these two companies, but at the same time, secure these companies. We were also given a target, a target that we had a hit from a savings perspective, because when the company decided to buy that other company, there are certain savings that go along against the actual purchase of that company. And quite frankly, a lot of the targets were IT's targets. IT was significant portion of the synergy savings re related to that actual acquisition. I don't know, Sammy, if you have a different way to explain that. Hopefully that made oh. sense. No, I, I agree. In fact, I'm reminded of a couple of transactions that I, I led in my past life, you know, in 2018, two beverage companies came together and they announced, and I, I was part of the team that came up with the number, a synergy savings target. It was a private equity led transaction and they expected to achieve about 600 million in annualized synergy savings by 2021. So the, the, the transaction took place in 2018. Two large multinational beverage companies and in three years, they had to meet about 600 million in synergy savings. Now, let's assume out of 600 million, there's people savings, facilities uh, consolidation, right? But then IT is going to be a big, big component to that. Now, how do you bring two large enterprises? Make sure there's no disruption to the operations. There are no issues to their end customers. There are no disruptions to supply chain but you still achieve 600 million in savings, right? Now, IT is gonna play a critical role in this whole overall equation. In my experience, I have seen close to 50% of synergy savings mm -hmm. coming from IT. Now, we're talking about synergy cost savings. There is another component to synergy, which is revenue synergy. Okay, so these two beverage companies are coming together, and obviously they're coming together for market expansion. How do they build on their existing business to increase their revenue, let's say by 2x or 3x over a five-year period? That again has to be supported by IT. What's always fascinating to me in any M&A situation is these financial targets that get put out there by analysts. You know, my cousin, he's been on the advisory side for many years and uh internal finance and he kind of gives me a, a view into that world which to me is like a completely other dimension right everything is upside down blue is red kind of thing i wonder when you say they looked at it and said hey 600 million that seems about right that feels like it could be out of touch a little bit i know uh just four years ago one of our good buddies of mine sent me a photograph of a network switch that was a Cisco 6509 that I configured for a primary data center in 
that was still running up until four years ago, and they were finally retiring it. Why that matters is because we had been acquired by this much larger company, and yet the architectural changes that should have happened never did. So it makes me go, hmm, you say 600 million. I immediately start thinking, that seems like a stretch. In your experiences, Pamela or Sammy, do companies actually achieve those synergy targets? So let's take, put it this way. In the old way of doing this and, and integrating networks from an acquisition, in the old way, basically, you look for whatever savings you could because that, that company you just acquired, you may not have connectivity to it for three to six months based on where you bought it in the world, okay? By the time you get security stacks out there, you order circuits in the traditional old world. So now you're talking, you already are three to six months out from ever starting to achieve any of those synergy savings. So you're starting to think, okay, what am I going to do to start showing I'm starting some sort of savings because the longer you wait for those savings, you'll never achieve that. So you start to look for anything and anywhere you can save. That's where it's so key of how the world has changed, right? By using really a zero trust architecture, you can actually pull those benefits from that three to six months out to now weeks. And now the business is saying, whoa, wait, are you telling me I'm not waiting three to six months to start to see the financial benefits of this acquisition? I can start to do things after two weeks. You know, your facilities people, whether you wanted to wait three to six months before you had a connectivity, those facility people were at the door knocking every day saying, I need to collapse this facility. I need to move these users. Okay, you can't move those users from that <laughs> company on that network to this building on a different network, which is a different company still. We That's didn't right. integrate yet, right? It was trying to figure out how to make all this work. And when you have, for, for multinationals, that have multiple acquisitions and potentially a divestor in there going at the same time, you got so many balls up in the air. If something breaks, you basically rebuild because you can't, you don't have the time to try to troubleshoot it. Yeah. But and somebody's neck is on the line, right? I've seen situations where you have a room full of executives. Think of CEO, COO, CFO, CIO, like the C suite having their regular cadence to figure out, okay, how. How well is the integration or divestiture progressing? And then we would have kind of gone through a lot of potential showstoppers, but nobody is ready to stand up and speak because nobody wants to be that bad person <laughs> to rock the boat, right? They're all hoping that, you know, for example, the CIO knows he's not going to hit the day one target. But he or she is just hoping that I don't get regulatory approval, so this gets pushed out. Sammy, that is a very powerful visual for me because I can absolutely imagine CEOs I've known and worked with in the past having that kind of conversation and likely uh, breathing down the neck of the CIO asking, when is it going to work? When is it, you know, why does this take so long kind of thing? And from a business perspective, if you take that kind of missed expectations or mismanaged expectations, it may be all of the above. What have you found on the business side that allows 
integrations to be successful or at least to get set up on the path towards success. And, and Pamela, same question on the technical side. As you're running these massive global infrastructures, what would you be expecting from Sammy to come to you with so you can execute effectively? A few critical success factors to make it a successful transaction. I would say the first one is a well thought out strategy for the integration or separation in line with the deal thesis, right? Whatever the deal is expecting to achieve, there has to be a strong strategy backing that deal thesis. The second is the executive management, the leadership should have a clear understanding of IT's role. Going back to what Pam said, said, the IT team should not be learning about the transaction after the deal has been signed. Early engagement, starting from the due diligence phase, is very critical. The third critical success factor, and I would say the most important, is uh, speed of execution. Whether it's to achieve your synergy targets or for continued business operations, the speed is absolutely critical. And then finally, the budget. We all spoke about the budget. I would say amount of budget allocated for the transaction is again very important. I was part of a transaction where the PE firm made a made a made an Excel mistake while computing the deal value. And what happened was we were trying to figure out okay, what is the one-time cost for this integration? And they gave us a number. And we were like, how the hell can you was integrate six, this company? Was it six hundred uh, million? Budget, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and the operating partner was like let me go back and check with the with the team that came up with the deal value. And it turns out the the person, the analyst that came up with the deal valuation made a made a made a mistake in the Excel. Now, having already presented to their investment committee, it's very difficult to go back and change. So you can understand, right? We had to work with that constraint to make sure it's still uh, done successfully. So the amount of budget you have for that standing up or integration or separation is another critical factor. Sammy, one of the things to key off of that is in, I should call out the fact that we had a phenomenal PMO organization in my former employer. They had a playbook down pat. So, and they pretty much knew what we were going to have to do based on a traditional way of doing this, right? But I think it all comes down to, from an IT perspective, you've got to change the way you approach an acquisition or a divestor for that matter, because the old way just isn't going to meet the business needs anymore. It's too long to go ahead. It takes you too long to get that integration done or to even start it. And now you're trying to go ahead and find savings. Forget it. You got to rethink this. You got to have a flexible architecture that allows you to remove the requirement of the network, right? And this is, this is coming from somebody who, who loves networks. But the, you, the companies are, have become too dependent upon it. That was all we knew. But when you actually start to move and you, you change your thought process, you change to more of a zero trust architecture, and you use that for your acquisitions, your divestors, you see a couple benefits. One, you actually go ahead and, and like I already talked about, you can actually pull that, that, that benefit of the acquisition forward. The other piece of this is you actually are able to give technology to your end users that they don't have to think about how to get to an application any longer. They just click the app. Let's face it, when you're sitting in an office, do you have to think about how to get to something? No, you click it. 
That should be how it is for a user, irrelevant of what network they sit on. If you are part of company A now, because you were bought by them, you should have that experience. Allow the technology to connect an end user to the resource they need, which does a couple things. They're happy. You can enhance their security posture because you're not really sure their security posture when you acquire a company. And number two, you go ahead and remove the change management of now, if you are still going to integrate, the company, get, guess what? The business gets to decide something. Number one, do you still really want to integrate? Or number two, are you going to go ahead and keep them a standalone because you're not sure what, what portion of that company may later on be sold off? If you allow and you use the technology to connect a user to the application, your teams have the ability now, based on what the decision is, is decide when do we start to consolidate or decom or converge these backend systems? Because the technology is connecting the user, user doesn't think about it. So now you're taking all that operational overhead and you're going ahead and starting to, to reduce it because now you're making decisions, not because of how it impacts an actual user, but what's the best thing for the company? I talked to That's a CIO right. this afternoon and the CIO, when I brought up the fact that, could you imagine doing this massive acquisition you're going to be embarking on without having to worry about the end user? giving them the same experience, a cohesive connectivity to an application that they need, but never having your technical teams say, well, we can't do it this way because, oh yeah, may, we may affect the end user. Oh yeah, we're going to have too much downtime for them. Think about <laughs> how easy this could be doing it in, a, in more of a zero trust approach. And that's a sea change for a lot of folks. This idea of instead of VPN connecting the networks, or in some cases, circuit deployments that need to connect between one facility to the other, uh, uh, simply allowing one connection to go in one direction and the, meets it in the middle in the Zscaler cloud, right? In the zero trust exchange. That is a completely different modality. And I certainly wish that I would have had something like this 20 years ago. Sadly, many organizations and professionals are struggling with the same problem that I was dealing with 20 years ago, which is, oh, I've got overlapping IP address space. Oh, look, I've got a server that's named the same thing. And I, now I have to figure out how to get uh, all my domain name resolution working properly until you've experienced it or seen it in action. It's hard to wrap your brain around it. Pamela, you've seen probably millions of different things, but if you were to say, what are the two or three things that you know for a fact that if these things are not in place on the either from the due diligence side or the technical integration side, if these things aren't either well thought out or accounted for, it's probably going to go sideways from an M&A perspective. There's a couple things. It's interesting because it's kind of multifaceted. You can look at it from the perspective of when you got that, that integration funding, that project funding, the first thing you would do is look at that, those firewalls. Right in the old world, you look at the firewalls, you make sure their their edge was secured. But guess what? Now the users and the applications may not be sitting inside that facility; they'll be anywhere and everywhere. So now you sit back and say, "Oh no! Now where are where is this company that we just acquired all their data? Did Shadow IT go off and spin up a bunch of cloud instances? That guess what? The IT group that's now giving us this this portfolio of applications is it cohesive?" Or is there company data that could affect the company's reputation sitting somewhere out there unprotected? 
Yeah. So you start to worry, right? I used to worry about this so much and more so now because let's face it, in the last five, six years, spinning up a cloud instance, so many organizations went and did it before organizations actually put a structure around it. So now you're thinking about that. You're thinking about the fact that I don't really know their security posture. You know, what does their security posture look like uh, even on an end user's device, right? You're worrying about that. You're thinking, okay, how, how can I go ahead and mitigate some of this? I also, I don't know what their true application portfolio is. What apps do they really need? And what of those applications do we really need to worry about from an integration perspective if we've decided to fully integrate? Or how do you decom something that maybe only two or three users are using because you need to reduce that, decom that, because that's part of your savings. So there's a lot of things. It's very complex of what's going on in the old world. Mm-hmm. When you take that and correlate it to new world and how so many are using the zero trust exchange of Zscaler and so forth to do these acquisitions and for that matter, divestors, you have sight into what are users using? Where are they going? What are they doing? Okay, now I can make some educated decisions on where I'm going to focus first. Sammy, based on yeah. what Pamela has shared here from the organizational IT leadership side, how the business side of the M&A piece and the technology side really intersect, and more importantly, what happens when that intersection doesn't quite yeah. happen cleanly. Like, what are the ramifications from a yeah. business point of view? I mean, I know you mentioned before, hey, $600 million in synergies. That seems like a lot of money, but again, it's a projection, right? But yeah. there have to be more ramifications that are not always thought through when these types of things go sideways. Yeah, sure. Yeah, if you if you look at let's say at a high level, right? If you look at an organization and break it down into break down the operating model, right? You're talking about let's say you break it down into several layers: people, applications, data, infrastructure, security, right? Now, the the fundamental aspect to making sure this doesn't go wrong or sideways is to understand the deal parameter. And I mentioned that, right? You need to have clarity on what are the applications uh, being accessed, right? Where are the users located? So having the deal parameter finalized during the due diligence phase is absolutely critical, whether it's an integration or separation. Now, the reason is that is going to inform all the computation around synergy modeling, deal valuation, the time it takes to complete the transition. Just just imagine if you have, let's say, 100 applications that should be separated to a spin code. Now, their CMDB system says there are only 50 applications that the spin code users need access to they have missed out the remaining 50 applications. Now, what will happen is the Spinco leadership as well as the the seller will estimate, let's say, a six-month transition. Now, after they have separated, they realize that, you know what? I'm missing 50 applications. So this cannot be done in six months. It has to be done in 12 months, right? right? So having the right deal perimeter defined is absolutely critical. And the second aspect is also Focusing on certain early warning signals, 
So during the due diligence phase or even confirmatory diligence, sometimes, you know, the seller is not ready to share a lot of information prior to signing the deal, but they are ready to share more information after a deal is signed. So whether it's pre-signed diligence or confirmatory diligence, they need, the buyer should have a clear understanding of the cybersecurity risk posture, right? I mean, I came across a transaction where uh, a payment processing company was getting acquired mm-hmm. and they had a lot of their modules in written in Visual Basic. And uh, some were really, really old, written like 25 <laughs> years or 20 years back. Like and, a pre-VV6 even? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they had not upgraded. And when we asked, hey, you know, have you seen any breach happening? I mean, have you seen any risk because of this? They said, uh-huh. no, nothing that we are aware of. Now think of the buyer in the situation, right? <laughs> they have to make a decision based on this answer without any scientific proof. <laughs> yeah. This is like your attorney, you know, hitting you and say, don't say anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pamela, on that, he mentioned due diligence. In your experience, tell me a little bit about what that's been like, where you mentioned earlier in our conversation that you're finding out sometimes that the acquisition is happening the same time the rest of the company does, but more importantly, the same time the street or the journalists are finding out. So let's say it this way. Inheritance is truly inheritance. And the mm-hmm. minute that deal's done, you've inherited it. And what you've got to do is you've got to focus. You know where the important places are to look. You, you, set, you, know, you set up those meetings right then and there. You try to understand and assess Listen, there are some organizations, there were times when we acquired companies that I couldn't even pronounce, let alone spell the type of hardware they were using, right? We didn't have resources that knew that kind of hardware. It wasn't a standard. So now you're relying, you're going through with the new IT team, you're going through a checklist saying, let's go over this. And in some instances, there is sometimes dialect issues because you, you've maybe acquired a company in, in maybe in that in that country, there's not a lot of English speaking technicians, and you're trying to find resources. It gets very interesting. But again, it's your responsibility to make sure that that company is secured. So you're going to go through that checklist. You're going to try to target those areas that you know may be a potential risk to you. And you start there and you do the best you can. And let's face it, every acquisition is some, even though you have a playbook, every acquisition is slightly different. No, that's that's an absolute fact. Every M&A is always different. I mean, it's human nature, right? We're dealing with other people and their cultures mm-hmm. and the way that they get things done. Think of all the times we've had to look at security policies. You have to do harmonization of policies and all of this. It's part and parcel of having disparate ways of looking at risk. Now, Sammy, if you were to tell our, our audience here maybe two or three things that they could see as uh, quick wins when getting engaged on an M&A project, what would you say would be one or two things that they could immediately focus on? And then uh, Pamela, same question for you. Sure. I would say a quick win will be rapid day one connectivity, right? Many times the buyer may have just three months for day one and they want to give access to their systems like HR, payroll, sales and marketing, right? Bare minimum set of applications for day one. You don't want to boil the ocean for that, 
right? So rapid day one connectivity will be a quick win. And the second is what gets done for day one should not be throwaway. So what's done for day one should be applicable for day two as well, right? So how do you build on top of that to enable a quick PSA cutover? That's going to be critical. Sammy, I can't agree more. It really does come down to how quick can I get users to applications irrelevant of their network? Make sure it isn't something you're going to toss out because don't waste the time, don't waste the money, right? Because in most of these organizations, you don't have the time to waste because it's the same group of individuals that are keeping the lights on, figuring out how they're progressing the technology for that company, how they're enabling the business because the businesses are changing. They're doing all these things at the same time. So they don't have the luxury to say, oh, we'll do it this way for day one, but we're going to change for day two. So make sure it is a solid solution. And the way you're going to do it is actually going to take you into the future. Pamela, in a former life, you were a Zscaler customer. What were the things that really helped set you up for success in terms of either the technology, the approach, uh, the engagement? Could you give us a sense of what that's like? Sure. It really came down to um, the technology proved itself out to us. That's what opened the door. It was really the POV understanding what we truly could do. There were so many years that to the business, I would have to say, no, sorry, can't do that. Right. What we found when we looked at the technology is, okay, we can do this. Oh, yes, we could possibly. Yes, we have to see how to do that. But I think we can do that. It really enabled the business very differently. And in doing so, you know, you start to change people's mindsets. You start to change how you look at the future. When I look back, it really came down to the technology proving what it said it was going to do. It connected users to applications. It did not expose the application environments to the internet. So basically, application environments, the data centers, the applications went dark, right? It also created a form of micro-segmentation. We are trying to get to segmentation, but you know, when you look at the traditional ways of doing segmentation, it's almost, it's so overwhelming. And to think, how do I operationalize that? So when we looked at the technology and we also looked what an awesome user experience we could give our people, enhancing their security posture. And when we saw that during the POV and we started to actually progress with Zscaler, we saw the partnership that came along with it. We were one of the first companies actually to get um, the technology working for an acquisition, right? We were one of the early adopters of that. And to see the way that Zscaler was willing to put resources at it, work with us to figure it out. They were also the same partners sitting in a war room at 2 a.m. And it's been 48 hours because we had an outage, but they wanted to make sure that the Zscaler platform wasn't causing the outage. So they were there, right there alongside of all of us, working through it and actually giving us ideas. Hey, we saw this with other customers. Did you check that? After the whole Zscaler technology was checked out, right? They didn't leave us. They didn't say, oh, sorry, not my problem. I'm gone. So it was that partnership that really we saw through the years and it didn't grow. It started from day one. And I thought that's re that really, we were looking for that. And we, it was very difficult to find in ver various vendors, but we found it was Zscaler. It's very true. The partnership across all aspects of a business are incredibly critical. And Sammy, I imagine in your case, in your former life, and also now as you're advising Zscaler customers on the same subject, what have you found 
in terms of that's really helping them be successful. Yeah, when Pam mentioned War Room, I'm reminded of a transaction during my consulting days. So we had like a two day long workshop, right now kicking off uh, the integration planning exercise. So the guiding principle was, hey, minimal IT footprint, which means cloud first strategy, right? Everything should be on the cloud. Hosting, if it's a private app or a SaaS application, if I have to stand up a new system. So we had all this conversation, and then we had about three hours dedicated for networks and security. And you will not believe these people were like drawing charts on a whiteboard, talking about you know connecting to sites through a dedicated uh, MPLS connection, or you know going through this elaborate old school approach. Now, unfortunately, I didn't know about Zscaler at that time, and I couldn't bring out this magic bullet, right? Now today, what I'm seeing is the ability to articulate our solution and platform is so simple. There are only three foundational items, right? There are three pieces. There's a Zscaler cloud, there's a client connector, there's an app connector. And it's so easy to explain. Many times you can actually explain an end, the end-to-end solution in 30 minutes, right? So what, what we are seeing is we, when we talk to somebody who's not familiar with Zscaler, there sure. is a sense of disbelief, right? Is it really possible to do it this mm-hmm. way, right? It starts with that. And then once they see the platform in action, they become advocates. That's the cycle that we are in, right? There is more and more adoption of our platform when it comes to transaction, uh, whether it's divestiture or integration, right? I mean, when you say don't touch your hardware, don't scale up your uh, don't scale up your hardware, do it rapidly in a matter of weeks. That really resonates, and many times you are able to create a self-funded project for the IT executives. Right? It's almost like, hey, I'm using this solution that's going to address your synergy target as well as your digital transformation uh, initiative. Yeah, that that is when there's true alignment from the technology side, the business side. And as you said, I wish this had existed a long, long time ago, back in my M&A integration days. Um, And I know that we're seeing a lot of organizations get a lot of benefit. I want to thank you both for joining us. I appreciate both of your insights. I thought the conversation was a combination of fun a little bit of a shoulder to cry on, and also a little bit of insights into how we're actually helping companies modernize their mergers and acquisition and divestiture strategy. Pam, thank you so much for your time. Sammy, thank you as well uh, for your insights. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the CISO's Gambit. I'm your host, Sean Cordero. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a comment and subscribe.
Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2022.